Hey everyone, welcome back to Tales from the Pit. After a long absence, I am your stalwart host, Michael Swaim, and I gotta say, it's a very big day for the pit. Uh, it's slightly, you know, the shade, the, the shadows cast are lightening slightly because it's sort of a trifecta day. It's the return of Tales from the Pit after quite a long absence. Um, it is also the first appearance of a man we've been wanting to have on the network for a long time. Gamefully Unemployed got him first, which, and we were like, oh, we thought he was too important to be on podcasts, but since they got him, someday we're like, now give us some of him. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not spoiling his name because I want the introduction to bear all the weight it deserves. Uh, and then we've also got another guest who is currently in the act of revivifying the Cracked YouTube channel, and uh, I think it's going to be really interesting and delightful to talk to him, too. We'll get a little more specific about what's going on here and what the topic is, but I want to get the other voices on the show. So first, we have uh, New York Times bestselling author and my old boss, Jason Pargin. Welcome, Jason. How's it going? And I, man, if you've got listeners who have never heard of me before, that's going to be such a letdown because they've, they've got to be sitting there thinking, Was it, does he have The Rock? Is, is it the rock on the, on the, on the... No, that would be a COVID risk, so no. Oh, that's... Yeah, that, um, I, yeah, I forgot that he had just announced he and his entire family. So yeah, as someone else said on Twitter, those yeah. of us who live the same lifestyle and have the same fitness routine as the rock, that was a real... <laughs> that was a real jolt, because like, even I'm not safe. Right, I know. And we need John Wick to get it, because then it'll be <laughs> fucked. But... uh I'll also, I'll point out, he announced that they all recovered. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made the joke I just made. So, uh, speaking of... I have to delete of, this if The Rock I, dies from COVID. Jesus. That's, I, I absolutely will. Episode. You think I won't delete that? <laughs> I would delete that immediately. Um, and then do a Tales from the Pit about it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, rounding out the uh, the A-team here, Mr. Jordan Breeding. Howdy, Jordan. Hey. I'm... <laughs> It's funny how little of an introduction I have. It's like, yeah, he's he's making videos, but it's this guy's a New York Times best-selling author. Jordan's a guy. Here, here, can you do that for yourself? And I'm I'm telling you to, so it's not like braggadocio because it's not that I'm sure you've done tremendous things. I'm just unfamiliar so far with your body of work, <laughs> other than the fact that you're revivifying the Crack Channel. What else do you do? No, that's. Uh, I mean, that's like. That's the main thing so yeah, far? Yeah, I mean, I've written a bunch of freelance stuff for Cracked and other places, but it's not like... Yeah. You know, I, I'm a, I was a music okay, director so, at a church up until like two weeks ago. So I wasn't overlooking like, and the first man to climb to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> there is no buried lead. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing there. Uh, yeah, okay, you're no, you're Great. wrong. Let me do it for him. Jordan, when did you first show up at Cracked in the workshop there? Uh, October 2016. Okay, so four years ago, this guy shows up uh, at Cracked with absolutely no experience or qualifications of any kind, uh, submits articles, gets dozens, over a hundred of them published, I believe. They did, they have been read combined by probably a wow. hundred million people, like m making him, through human history, one of the most read writers in the history of the world, just because modern <laughs> technology allows that. Like, I get that those people did not mm -hmm. pay anything for those articles, but still, the number of people on Earth who have read Jordan's words, even if they don't know his name, is very large. Uh, then Cracked, which, as we will discuss, uh, fired its entire video team three years ago. This is a YouTube channel that still has how many subscribers, Jordan? Uh, like 
2.6 million. Yeah, 2.6 million subscribers. This is a, you know, so still a very large video channel and used to be like the engine of this very large $40 million company. Uh, they basically entrusted one man to single-handedly <laughs> revive the video content, and that was Jordan Breeding. It was no one else on planet Earth but him. So he is making videos that I do not doubt early on all of the comments were death threats um, and has had to A earn high majority, yes. you know, yeah. that has had to earn back the trust and the love of all these people who many of whom only know cracked as the company that fired Dan O'Brien and Michael Swaim and, and Soren Bowie and the, of the other cast of after hours um, and has had to take on this task, shooting these videos in his own home in the middle of a worldwide cataclysm. Uh, and so this proud brand that I helped build up is now depending on him making Jordan one of the most important people in that whole organization. Uh, and it was through an incredible amount of work, much of it very underpaid, uh, that got him to this point. Do you see that, Jordan? Do you <sighs> see how that's done? Was that so hard? What? I mean, well, now I feel like an idiot. Like I just, <laughs> like I was waiting for one of you to like notice something or whatever. I didn't even realize, Jason, that you no, were very well said. aware of much of that, but I suppose you were in charge of crack for a while. So that was yeah. my entire and, uh, deal. Thank you. And, and I can't if if we want to make this a Joe Rogan length episode, <laughs> I can I, I can for the people who don't know who I am, I can explain kind of the history of crack. Uh, Michael, I don't know how familiar your listeners already are. Would they just be bored by that? Well, I think a lot of, I think people, we always see a spike when like if, uh, you know, we have Soren on and it goes off on a tangent or we talk about how everything went down at cracked, people are endlessly interested in the drama. So I'd say go for it. I can, it's not the topic of the episode, but it bears on it because we'll be talking about cracked for sure. So, uh, go for it. I'll, I'll pull the trigger if I need okay, to. Okay. Yeah. This is just for context in case, uh, somebody doesn't, uh, get why we're, we keep referring to this history or even know what, what site yeah, we are saying. We keep saying cracked. It's like crack, crack. What is it? It's cracked past tense.com. Like the old. Humor Magazine, if you're an extremely old person, it was the old Mad Magazine ripoff that in 2006 the magazine folded. They started a website, and then shortly after that, um, Jack O'Brien, uh, all of our former bosses, um, was – he basically was – they had a single employee at the time. This is in like early 2007 – uh, at some point in the fall of that year, they were allowed to hire a second employee, <laughs> and that was me. Um, so then I came on board, and they the cracked. If you are a fan of that site and of its articles and and that format of articles, that is kind of the site as it in that incarnation was kind of the result of a merger of the site I was running at the time with what the old magazine's website. And so we combined it, including the process I brought, which was this workshop process where basically anyone could submit, but it was not just this blind inbox rejection system. We created this huge online like support group for writers, basically. Uh, in this massive community and the crack that you know if you were a fan in those glory years from 2012 to 2016 around there the workshop was what drove that um, even people you know from video like Dan O'Brien um, 
a lot of those people, they, you know, and Tom Ryman and David Bell, like those people came through that, that workshop. So that was kind of my, uh, innovation, I guess. So I generally, I was basically second in charge to Jack and I basically had creative control over the text side of the operation. Most of that rolled up to me and cranked as a brand grew to where at its apex had about 25 million visitors a month across the site, the YouTube channel, the podcasts, um, the stuff that was exclusively on Facebook. If you add that all together, it probably comes up to about 25 million. That would probably have been late 2016 or so. Um, and then if it, Michael, people have listened to other episodes or as you mentioned, who talked about the drama of, of the layoffs and all that, that happened in December of 2017. Um, and Michael, you were gone by then, right? You had left. Well, in between absorbing was kind of the, I think the MO. Yeah. Uh, so I would just be remiss if I didn't say somewhere in there, they also absorbed my sketch troupe essentially. And that became the beginning of the crack video department. Uh, and then there was a long period of what could, what I will potentially look back on as the greatest time in my life. Uh, and then, uh, I started having, yeah, personal problems and issues with the direction the company was going in. And that is absolutely what I want to talk about on this episode. Um, because my ambition is and always has been from early adolescence to write for television and film. And uh, I thought Cracked would be more of a stepping stone to that than it was. And towards the end, some top level decisions were made to steer away from that. Um, like I heard it said, like, we're a website, you know, let's not fuck with the formula. Like this is working. Let's be a website. And that just wasn't what I wanted out of life. So I made the difficult decision to quit and then had no idea that I literally quit. And two weeks later, the layoffs happened. So it was like, I agonized over that decision for over a year. I was like thinking about it and getting ulcers and stuff. And then to find out it was moot, I kicked the can so long, I could have just waited two weeks and I would have gotten severance. Instead, I basically just <laughs> screwed myself out of severance. Uh, but it was an important decision at the time. So what had happened without getting into boring online uh, economy stuff, uh, basically sometime in the year 2016, um, well, prior to that, most web traffic started to flow through only two companies, Google and Facebook. So you had Google search traffic and then your loyal fans all came through Facebook. Um, as users got to be where they were browsing on phones and then toward you know the end, around 80% of our audience was on a phone. There's something unique about people who are on phones. They only want one thing they tap on their screen that gives them the whole internet. And that thing was the Facebook app. And so Facebook told everyone, hey, all publishers from the New York Times to the Chive to, you know, a clown dot fart, every site, come on Facebook. This will be the hub of all content. And so we built our entire company around all of that traffic from the glory years that was coming in through Facebook. It all came in. Most of it came in through mm -hmm. our Facebook fan page and people's individual feeds. They would go on and our articles, our videos would drop into their into their feeds. And we had a separate, you know, the YouTube channel was kind of a separate audience. The podcasts were separate audience, but those were the pillars of the site. At some point in 2016, um, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know when, uh, someone at Facebook realized they were about to get Trump elected with 
<laughs> the way they were channeling traffic. So they panicked and I, I think, and basically said, we're sh- shutting off all traffic to all publishers. And so over the course of the next year into late 2017, well into 2018, uh, cracked laid off everyone. This is in December, 2017. They laid off 85% of the staff um, and closed the office. This was after months of, of budget cuts and of cutting contractors and cutting video budgets, everything. And finally they just shut basically almost the entire thing. And the data and signaling and numbers from Facebook at, we come to find out are either hazy or in some cases fabricated or fudged, yes, right? Yes, because they were trying okay. to convince publishers to put all of their video on Facebook and video is expensive. So that's, that's a huge commitment. And they were putting up fake numbers because we would put up a video on YouTube and, you know, get like 400,000 views and put the same video up on Facebook and it would get like 2.5 million. And they say, see, well, it turned out what Facebook was doing was anyone who, like scrolled past the video on their phone on the way to look at something else. They was a blink they counted that as yeah. a view. So it's like, so they were just lying. So cranked, laid everyone off, shut down the office, completely shut down the video team altogether. They closed down the entire, like they got rid of the cameras. Uh, um, but then very soon after it happened to all of our competitors, college humor, let everybody go funny or die, let everybody go. Yeah. Uh, there were layoffs at the onion, at the chive, at Buzzfeed, even the, the monster sites, Mike.com, let everybody go. So I, but I was one of the few people they kept on board after the layoffs, one of five editors they kept to try to keep the operation alive. And I stayed because I suspected that if I left, that they would just pull the plug because there were still the, you had the five people there, but you had dozens, if not hundreds of contractors like Jordan, who still depended on the site for a paycheck. And let me ask you this, uh, cause it is tales from the pit. So I'm going to dig emotion out from you. If it's the last thing I do is, uh, was that the feeling that propelled that decision? Was the responsibility to the rest of the people working at the site? Like, was that the main motivator for you staying on versus just ditching and leaning into book writing? Yeah, because I didn't, I was the one person who could afford to, to be laid off. I had, it's, it's, I had right. in the middle of all this, I had, uh, had, I, I had a book that I had published that I'd sold the film rights to at around 2009. And then that, uh, the book is called, a book and movie is called John Dies at the End. And that led to a series of lucrative book deals that I did on the side. And I made far more money off those than I made off my salary at Crack. But that doesn't... And you don't live in Los Angeles, so you're good. You're yeah, set. <laughs> so I was actually... Uh, well, leading up to that point, I was handing off tasks because it, I thought that the site was going to continue to pivot to video and podcast and that, and I'm a writer. So I, I thought the day was coming. They would mm. come to us article people and say, Hey, you are laid off. You know, the future is in video and podcast because toward the end, like the month prior to letting everyone go, the YouTube channel had grown by like, 30% that month before, like November, 2017, the views mm-hmm. had skyrocketed. We were, it was doing, it was thriving. We thought we were doing yeah. fine. Yeah. So that was, that was a shock. And so all of a sudden overnight, it, 
Okay. If you if you want me to get into it, I had spent 10 years building this up one fan at a time, one worker at a time, one, you know, acquiring talent, putting this together. So this is for someone who doesn't have a family, who doesn't have kids, this is as close to seeing a child die in front of you that I can feel. It is not as bad as that, but I don't have kids. So for me to invest, like this was my, because Cracked was 10 years. I came in in 2007, but then it was the merger mm. of the site that I had created in 1999. So I actually had 17 years into it, almost two decades that was gone. Everything I had poured into it was gone just like that. So overnight... By the way, I don't think we've name-checked Pointless Waste of Time. Yeah, that original. was what would now be called a blog, but it was you start something in 1999. They did not have the word blog back then. It was just right. a website. Um, so, um, but it, anyway, um, immediately overnight, like I, they told me they were, I, I was one of the few people they were keeping, but immediately all of my friends are out of work. All of my friends are in crisis because they've all lost their jobs. They've lost their health insurance. They didn't know what was going to go on with the severance. And there weren't a lot of landing spots because everything else was in the industry struggling, struggling too. So that, I'm not going to tell the story about my dog again. I told this on, I told this I, I on heard, a video. I heard some kind of self-censorship in there. No, uh, I had, it's, it's, this is going to come off like self-pity and I don't want to get into that because I did keep my job. Like I, I was in the best position of anyone because I was someone for whom if I had been laid off, it would have been a little bit of a relief because I was not going to get this next book written in time. Instead, I'm, I'm kept on board and it's also like, Overnight, you need to come up with, uh, with a plan to keep this thing running for the dozens or couple hundred people out there who are depending on crack to pay the bill. Some of whom will like literally be homeless without this paycheck, and you've got to figure out how to do that and also how to stage a comeback with eighty-five percent of the talent gone, including. All of the video people who were the who had become the face of the brand. I mean, Michael, did people recognize you in public when you're walking around? Did you people have stop you and like because they knew you from after hours? Yep, still do. Okay, that's <laughs> happened in my entire life as a writer. That's happened three times in my entire life. Okay, but you guys, it happens like once a month or so. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you had. A legitimately huge audience when, you know, cause some of these, you look at the traffic on an episode of after hours and people have to realize that today in this media market, a show that's on cable, like FX, like Archer, like a new episode mm -hmm. of Archer will get like 150,000 viewers. Right. Like after hours beat the pants off of it. And you know, where that show has a budget of however many million dollars per episode, you know, after hours was you guys working, filming overnight and then somebody having to edit for 40 straight hours or whatever <laughs> to get it done. So it's so all of the energy, all of the enthusiasm was over on the video site. And then also the podcast were growing as fast as we could. Like we were trying to, it, there was this huge process of trying to convert every writer into a video person or a podcast person. This is why, you know, Tom had a show and, and Alex had a show and every, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, well, this is, this is the future. And it, that's simply a technology thing because, you know. Yeah, by the way, I, I 
would you agree that it still is the future? I think there's just a consolidation process where the powers that have always been are sort of getting into the market and independent production companies essentially like cracked uh are starting to get consolidated and and gobbled up like i still think video and podcasting is the future but we're starting to just see that you know become a cordoned off area that's like well there's hulu and amazon and netflix and you know the legitimate quote unquote powers that be i think are just becoming the conduit for that material right maybe but this is where i want to because i someone has noticed we've not let jordan talk (laughs) this is because i just wanted to tell the crack story (laughs) briefly before we got into it but i think I want to get into him and his process with making the videos now because I think it's very different from how you guys had to do it. Like he's working with a fraction of the resources and money and support. Because um, mm. Jordan, you're like this is you're like a one man band for the most part, right? Um. Yeah. So my my friend Caleb, uh, he shoots it and he does like the teleprompter. Um, but we don't have the money. Well, we have the money, I guess, but we haven't bothered to spend the money, uh, to get like an actual teleprompting program. So we actually, um, (laughs) we just run it from his laptop to a computer or to a TV. And then we actually use a piece of glass so that we can reflect it. Like we can. Interesting. Can I just say this? Uh, does not compute. I did 50 episodes, no teleprompter. That's all just memory. Yeah, no, that's. So you don't need That's it. Smart. If you hate yourself, <laughs> I cannot. No, I cannot memorize for crap. So yes, I I would have to have it. <laughs> how, how long? How much would you have to practice before you could just do it all? From how much prep went into how many hours of prep before you could do a does not compute module? Uh, does not compute, which essentially boils down to like a tight eight minute monologue. Uh, it would take one like a half day of running it and then I sleep and the neurons sort of, uh, I find if I do it the day before for about half a day and then I sleep, when I wake up, I know it, Pat. Uh, I think there's something about having a period of sleep in between that solidifies it. I believe neuroscience will back me up on that. But it's also way easier when you wrote it. Like Jordan, do you find yourself just remembering things because you also wrote it? Yeah, right? so far it's only been stuff that I've written. Um, so... Yeah, it's uh, on After Hours, like if Jack wrote an episode, all four of us would have way more trouble than if one of us had written it. Um, But please go on, Jordan. No, I mean, that was it. It's just basically like, um, it's just me and Caleb. So he films it, I write it and act, and then uh, I edit it, and then he does all the green screen stuff like that. And they're just paying you like a flat fee for that, right? It's basically freelance work. Uh, yeah, we had a flat fee, but I just give all that to Caleb now. And then, um, we, we actually did a 50, 50 ad split, um, okay. for the, for the first 20. Yeah. So how, tell me about the balance of hopefully excitement. Hopefully there's some excitement and joy involved (laughs) and, uh, uh, versus, uh, either frustration with the limitations or uh, talk a little bit about the experience of like stepping in and starting something new. Have the commenters really been that bad? Because I got to tell you, I have a new bar for that because I now work in the video game space mm. and it is rough, you guys. 
Like it is as toxic as it gets. Uh, I think worse than anything I ever saw a crack, but like, how are the commenters treating you? Is it starting to turn around? Does that kind of stuff affect you at all? Or do you just brush it off? What does it feel like <laughs> to be doing what you're well, doing? I mean, the first thing I was going to say is that it, you know, it's, it's always interesting, obviously, uh, Jason, when you put out that video, like just a few weeks after you left, um, it's just interesting to get all this context because obviously I was one of your lowly freelancers. Um, kind of one of the ways that I ended up at Cracked was, and by at Cracked, I just mean writing for Cracked at all. I I was working at a church and I uh, they moved me from playing music to just doing like production video stuff. And I didn't like it. So I left to do music like with my band. Like I thought I was going to be some hotshot rock star and it took me about a week to realize oh you can't just like decide to be a successful musician and i just remembered that cracked took freelance articles and i was like oh like once once i submitted i was like this is it this is what i want to do this is so much freaking fun um and i leveraged the few articles i wrote to get an internship at paste so my wife and i moved down to atlanta for a little while and then while that was happening you know i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna i wrote literally 430 articles for them I was just like, I'm wow. going to freaking, you know, how can they not hire me? I'm going to, I'm going to write 11 articles a day. And a lot of it was breaking news stuff, but they're also lists and stuff. And I was still writing for Cracked. And then as I'm sitting there at my desk, like every day, somebody else didn't come into the office because they'd been fired. Like the food editor was gone or the, like the games editor was gone and like absorbed by somebody else. And so, you know, I just... It was a really rough, like, got to the end of the internship, had to move back to Charlottesville, realized there was no job. Three months later, everybody at Cracked gets fired, so I was like, well, that's not happening. Um, and 2018 was really rough. Uh, you know, I was doing some stuff at Cracked, but I didn't really think there was any future there. Um, and now I felt like, you know, I had gone from thinking I was going to be some great writer or whatever and get employed somewhere and be on staff to being like, oh my gosh, I'm just some idiot without a job who writes, you know, a couple articles a month for places. And uh, eventually I ended up getting a job um, back at a uh, another job with a church to do music. And then, you know, Jason, you emailed all of us about literally uh, buying the company. And I was just like, well, maybe they'll be interested in video stuff. I wonder if I could make a video. And so we made that video, just Caleb and I in his basement, really not expecting anything. This is one of the reasons I didn't think to memorize it or I didn't really have a process. I just made it. And then I sent it to Syriac and he was, that's how you develop a process. Yeah. Got to just do shit. Well, yeah. and so, you know, it's just funny, like the doctor bit, I, I obviously very clearly, I mean, I watched like a hundred, not a hundred, there's only like 40 or whatever. I watched a ton of um, obsessive pop culture disorder episodes and literally modeled it after that because I was just trying to sell it. You know, I didn't really think mm -hmm. about them buying it. Um, and they liked it and they were like, all right, can we get 10 more episodes, one a week? And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I have a job. You know, it's really hard. That's a quick turnaround for those. That is pretty aggressive yeah it is um and you know i initially asked for a ton of money and they were like well obviously you can't do that and so i was like all right i'll just try it um and it's been it was you know the first video came out and i was really excited about it and the commenters were pretty brutal um 
I recently got access to the actual back end of the cracked YouTube. Like I have a login now and mm-hmm. I realized mm-hmm. there were so yeah. many comments that YouTube thought was too brutal to allow. Like we would have to manually allow them. And I was just like, Phew. it's, you know, on the one hand, I think it's a testament to the stuff that you guys built, right? Like you built a fan base that's passionate about the things that you guys made. Um, mm, uh, it's fucked up. It makes me despair for humanity a little bit. Yeah. Like Cody, Cody joined midstream, but very early on, he was just like the first person to join after after hours had been solidified, and. For a solid year and a half, everything he made, it was just walls of like literally stuff that I don't, maybe it's only me, but I think it does wear at you as a writer. Like just straightforward, you're not funny. This is not funny. They should not have hired you, period. And like those are the ones that really rankle you because it's like less easy to write off. You're like, damn, this person wishes I was unemployed. That's a pretty rough fate to wish upon someone. I must really not be funny. And, uh, then a year and a half later, it just turned off and stopped happening. And uh, then the next new person gets that level of flack. And uh, it's bizarre because the disconnect is so profound. Like, do you not understand? We hired this person. Hmm. So we think they're funny. That's why they're fucking here. We're all friends. Like, what, never, what always baffles me is comments like... Uh, like the Katie's would get comments like, don't worry, Katie stole. I love you. Katie Willard can go fuck herself. She's a bitch. Like she sucks. It's Katie stole all the way. It's like, why do you think we're not all friends? Why do you think we're vying against each other? It's bizarre. Right. Uh, and uh, maybe that is a difference because I, I work at IGN now and I have a login. So I do see the completely unfiltered comments and I'm not sure I did it cracked. Maybe I was protected. Jack O'Brien was big on telling everyone to never read the comments. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, Jason. Um, I think I'm older than both of you. Jordan, how old are you? 29. Okay. It's going to say, unless, unless you're like a very youthful 50, then <laughs> the, yeah, I'm, I'm 45. Yeah. Uh, I, by the time I started. I'll never tell. By the time, <laughs> by the time I started it Cracked, I had been in doing stuff online for about 10 years. It's because I, my first, you know, I got my first internet connection, I think 1996, started my first website in 1998, um, which I think was like a Chicago Bears fan site or something like I, I didn't. Um, but either way, by the time I arrived there, I was very well aware of, uh, like, I'm not a big fan of comments. It's not because people are awful, although we can we can talk about this because as an entertainer, every new columnist that came on board would get the same treatment, every single one. And within a year, they were heroes. But there's always, it's almost like they think it's a, it's a hazing thing. Because the mm-hmm. the readers or whatever would have this weird sense of ownership of the site where if someone new showed up, that it would be like they're invading or something. And like when we convinced Sean Baby, Sean Riley, who writes as Sean Baby, who's been famous on the internet since 1997. Like we convinced him to come write a column for us, um, which was difficult because he had a lot of other projects going on. Like the first comments were like, whose cousin is this? Like whose <laughs> nephew was this that they, 
And Sean is, you know, the guy who taught me to write comedy. He's the voice most of us were imitating. He's, you know, Brockway. All of us grew up reading Sean Baby and like we're we're all just aping his style. Like he invented the style of writing that there's thousands and thousands of writers that you didn't even know or they themselves don't know they're aping. They got it from Sean Baby, late 90s Sean Baby. So this guy shows up and, and even Sean, even my mentor, they're they're like, OK, I guess I'll just let anyone in the door now. But I knew even before I started that that is. If you are any kind of an entertainer, I don't care if you've got a blog of 15 readers or if you are Tom Cruise, there is a certain segment of the audience or certain moods in the audience where they get more value out of hating you. That as a receptacle for their anger and their frustration in their lives, that you're more valuable to them as that than as a source of jokes or video or, or whatever. Well, that's always the mystery is you're like, you're, you, it was optional to watch this. Right. right but those but you sat here and watched this and wrote a paragraph about how you hate us. Oh, <laughs> just don't okay. watch it. No, no, not just wrote a paragraph about how they hate you, but wrote a paragraph citing every misstep from the past 10 years mm-hmm. because they have been reading you every day or every time you post something every time and they reread the old stuff and they obsessively read it and they know every little thing. And the people who can whip out like, oh, well, this is the guy that said that that one slur in an article in, in 1998 is like, that's your biggest fan. That person's been following you for 22 years. Right. It, it, they know all of your sins because they they love you. It's just the way they express the love is by constantly saying they hope you die. It is a curious thing of fan behavior that literally anyone who's been an entertainer for a few months is first baffled by and then disturbed by. And then eventually it, to, to me, it just became ba- background noise because yeah, I think most long-term entertainers I know are like, Oh yeah, those, those people, they exist. Yeah, you are, yeah. you're filling <laughs> a need in their life. You are giving them, they showed up wanting to be angry and they got what they wanted. And so it's, you can call it hate reading or whatever, but that is their relationship with the content. That's what it is. They perceive it. They feel it as like friction or whatever, but it is because they wanted something to get mad at that is safe to get mad at because they can't go to work and tell their boss, I hope you die. They'll get fired. But they can go online and tell you, I hope you die, because there's no consequence. The worst you can do is ban them from the comments, and then they can just just come back. Yeah. I had a guy Uh, write a whole cracked article, Mm -hmm. top five reasons why Jordan sucks. And he'd very clearly, like, found my Facebook, found my LinkedIn. Like, it was actually a pretty well-written article. Uh, <laughs> they'll put lots of effort and creativity towards it. Some of them where you're like, that was a decent project. You should have just submitted something to cracked that showed that much polish instead right. of, right. yeah. yeah. Um, but this is the perfect segue into what I nominally wanted to talk about. So I'm going to take that off ramp and go for it. So uh, pardon me, Jordan. Give me, there's one moment I want to wrap no. up the crack thing. No, because it, no, <laughs> my segue is drifting away. <laughs> it, people may be confused by what we're about to say. I am not there anymore. I left in March. We, mm. we never said that. A different company called Literally Media, it is not the same company that laid everybody off. A different company in fall of last year bought Cracked 
and brought on Jordan. I, I'm bringing that up because some people perceive anyone doing work for Crack as being like, we're stabbing Michael Swain breaking in the back. Breaking the scab. Yeah, yeah breaking exactly. the scab. Like, like we breaking crossed the picket the line. line. Yeah. Exactly. Because like, a lot of people kind of boycott the site, either officially or unofficially, because of how you guys were treated. And so a lot of the hate toward Jordan is, and I, I want to, that's why I'm saying this. No one, no one who made the decision to lay you guys off profits from Jordan's videos or his traffic. Yes. No one involved. That company is gone there. They don't own it anymore. Whether or not the new company will turn out to also be evil, I don't know. I left, but I left because... Still indetermined. Yeah. Because Crank <laughs> had been successfully sold to someone else, and I took that as my... It's like, okay, now I'm free to go and get this book written that I'm way behind on. But I was not fired. I was not pushed out the door. I was secure in, I, I stayed for a few months after they bought it to help with the transition, get all the new processes in place, make sure that it was going to survive. Um, they weren't going to turn it into just like a, a, a spam bot operation. Um, so anyway, that that's, that's the wrap up on, on that. So I, I left in March and then immediately a worldwide pandemic hit. So not only did I not have a day job, but now could not leave the house so that's been my that's been my mood since then but anyway I, I wanted to put that out there yeah small beans wholly endorses the advice of dr jordan breeding yeah uh absolutely absolutely we i was very tickled and excited to see someone doing something and uh i hope it is exciting because it should be at least partly yeah and I there think... are not many platforms left like the ones that are still around i don't care yes. man if they're paying if they're paying for content Jesus. I, In fact, yeah, it took me three years to do so. And I was looking for stable work that entire time. But uh, statistically speaking of the crack diaspora, it's incredibly unlikely that I landed where I landed, which is uh, in another very similar role, like doing the job I did at Crag head of video for another site, because that there aren't that many of that role left. No. Uh, IGN happens to still be going strong for some reason. I think just because they so thoroughly own video game news space, they're hard to dislodge, but uh, knock on wood, I don't know. But um, you were talking about uh, how we provide a service as a heat sink for people's hatred and rage. And uh, I think that's very pertinent because the whole reason this episode got started is Jason, you posted a video. Uh, I saw it on Twitter, but I guess on YouTube originally uh, about the, I believe the title was the most important best piece of advice or most important. I should be more headline savvy as an ex crack. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, but, I don't uh, remember either yeah. what I called it. I, I, just, make, I think it was make yourself was like valuable. The, Am I not the best piece of advice I ever got in my life? Yeah. Make yourself valuable. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and, uh, and you talked about, uh, that there are interesting there are interesting ways that providing a service and being valuable uh you know is something that can be deeply unpacked it doesn't just mean you talked about beautiful people providing an inherent value that seems unfair but also the value that comes from interpersonal skills uh, emotional intelligence ability uh in you know indefinable leadership qualities uh and everyone of course has millions of variables that comprise their personality so it's not only about honing skill sets it's also about finding what is what you have a natural aptitude for and it's also about uh meditation on what is value uh i it's really interesting to me that you just pointed out that i mean that i will turn to that for comfort now in the future that had not occurred to me that maybe 
that guy who hates you, good for him. You're you're helping him out. He needed someone to hate. Consider that the service. Um, that's very interesting to me. And we sort of got into it on Twitter, but I immediately had to disengage for work reasons. So I just basically, I have a privilege that very few have, which is I get to ask David Wong follow-up questions <laughs> and get answers in real time. So I wanted to talk to you about that video and uh, and then apply it to some of the stuff we just spoke about. So if you wouldn't mind... Uh, do you think, can you recap the piece of advice as you see it in your own words? I know I just did recap it a bit, but I'm sure you can elucidate. Yeah, because it's not, that video was a summary of a few articles I'd written at Cracked. It's the the article that I'm most famous for writing that I get the most mail about is one that I did, I think in 2012, uh, called Six Harsh Truths That Will Make You a Better Person. Mm -hmm. And it was based off of, if you or any kind of a public facing person, you probably get a lot of mail or comments or forum posts from people asking you for advice and not specifically career advice, but because I, I have an audience that's a lot of young males. Um, and because of the situation we're in right now, where you've got a large generation of, of guys, um, who don't have careers, maybe are still living at home longer than what would have been happened in previous generations. Um, maybe you're doing a lot of gig work or they've got, you know, like a service job. They don't necessarily have a career or one they're not using. So I would get a lot of messages where people like, I just don't see the point of anything. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, you know, I'm not in a relationship. I don't know how to meet girls. I don't know how to. So I had tried to come back to this very simple advice, which is that you're kind of programmed by biology to get little pleasure chemicals in your brain from accomplishing something tangible and being good at something. I went to school, you know, in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of talk back then about like self-esteem and building self-esteem, but their method for building self-esteem was like, you look in a mirror and say, I am valuable. People like me. But if you then leave the house and you don't really like, I feel like that's very limited. It, it, it's, it can be helpful, but, but it's very limited as compared to actually doing something that you're proud of that's where confidence comes from. I feel like just telling someone to have confidence, telling someone to have a good self-image, I think that's a very limited, that's not necessarily helpful for everyone. Whereas if you walk around knowing that, you know, like you see this with the athletes at school, you know, like they're confident because, Hey, I'm good at something. Everybody saw me score, score that hockey uh, uh, goal. But even if you walk around knowing confident that you can, uh, you know, you're good at woodworking or you've got a world-class chili recipe or you're a good cook or something like that, mm -hmm. that you can show people that impresses strangers that you would be shocked at what that does for your anxiety, depression, whatever, this feeling of aimlessness, because I, I, not to sound like a boomer, but I am extremely old. But the way they program software now with social media, where it's all based on trying to give you like a false, like a placebo version of that, where you get likes on your, on your post and it feels good in the moment. Like you get that dopamine hit and I play ton of video games, but games very much have with the leveling system, 
you know, you've leveled up or you've got right. you know, something and it, it's supposed to push those buttons in your brain. Like, Hey, I have accomplished something. I have built something, but it is not as tangible because when you go out in the world among other people, it doesn't necessarily impress people at parties or whatever. And humans are social animals. We're social creatures. We, you know, we have hormones that, you know, the, the scientists call it a helper's high. When you do something that helps someone else or you create something that helps someone else, you get a little rush from it. It decreases the levels of cortisol in your bloodstream or, you know, the stress hormones in your bloodstream. So it's yeah, as a as an long ever now, I guess now at this point, a long time. But as an AA member, uh, a big revelation for me was that it goes from the outside in, or at least I guess people's practices vary. But um, they s- say it's like you don't uh, think good thoughts and then do good things. It's the other way around, and that took me years to you know it's especially if you're a cerebral person, you uh, it's very tempting to think you can think your way through a problem or emotional distress or a feeling of ennui or uselessness. And it feels like, uh, well, what's the point of, uh, you know, let's say volunteering at the soup kitchen or what have you being of service. I, I can tell that it's not going to feel good, but I, if you just do stuff <laughs> it's, uh, to Jason's point, I, you do stuff first and then the feelings come after and the thoughts come after and you walk around with an air of confidence that you've earned. Yeah. And again, it, the very first line of that article was if you are a high achiever and everything's going great in your life, close your browser. This is not, this is not universal advice. I am specifically talking to the sad mostly young guys. I'm not saying women don't experience this. I'm just saying that my that's who I was getting messages from. I'm talking to them. Some of these guys who are kind of like what you would think of as incels because they're like very bitter about they can't get a date and mm-hmm. why isn't it considered attractive that I just stay home and watch anime all day? Like why can't they just love me for that? And so my advice was actually just very straightforward that instead of constantly I'm the type of person, if I don't have anything going on, my thoughts turn inward and I start attacking myself. So I think that's kind of, you can get into this very dark, selfish place where it's just like me, 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 why is the world crapping on me? Where if you flip it around and say, okay, well, I'm surrounded by people who need things. I'm surrounded by people who need everything from entertainment to food to what do they need? What, what, what are, what are women looking for? You know, and, and you consider say, oh, they just want a guy who's tall and drives a Lamborghini, but that's not true. They want someone who's interesting. They want someone who's got, there's a myriad of skills yeah, that you it, could hone. Yeah. yeah and I think, little things like that just makes you a more interesting person. So constantly. So my advice to everyone for the future, for your own mental health and for your own you know, career prospects is just always try to be learning things and always try to be making yourself more interesting and adding to the things you can do. And that's it. That's like my only big Make life a video game. (laughs) Do fetch quests in real life for people. The reward is uh, much more complex and nuanced. Uh, Jordan, you were saying something? Yeah, I was just going to say, so, you know, uh, we had our first, my wife and I had our first kid um, about a year and a half ago. And I think- Thank you. Uh, one of the great things about it, um, to your point, Jason, it's like, uh, you know, assuming you're not a total dick, like suddenly you have somebody else to care for and think about. Um, and it, I just noticed like in, in 2018 when I was sort of, you know, 
in the post crack, like I'm never going to get a job there. I'm never going to get a job writing anywhere. I just kind of felt terrible all the time uh, because I didn't feel like I had anything to do. And so I was just always thinking about myself to your point, just being like, I don't get it. Why can't I find a job somewhere? Um, but when we found out my wife was pregnant, it was just kind of a, I don't know, it suddenly gave you purpose because there's something else to care about. There's somebody else to care about, something else to think about. And ultimately that led to me getting a job and then making these videos for Cracked, I guess. It's just, uh, we have a we have a family friend who always used to say like, sometimes with people who don't get married or don't date or anything, um, they kind of become themselves a little bit. And I think it is helpful sometimes just to have people that need crap from you, uh, mm-hmm. whether whether it's friends, whether it's a wife, whether it's a kid, whatever. It it really does help to just be like, maybe I won't think about myself for a second. I'll just kind of focus on your problem. Um, and yeah, you could obviously build that out to like soup kitchens. Like, well, yeah, I just mm. I I just have to say I hate doing stuff like that, or like it's not my natural inclination. I like to be valuable by honing skills and and yeah. showy, showy, selfish ways of being of value. Like I like being good at my job and putting out good content. I am not naturally inclined to uh, do the classic selfless things. Oh. I. I I'm fairly yeah. selfless in my, like with my close friends, but I'm not the, uh, uh, go down and serve soup at the soup kitchen guy. Yeah. Even though I support that, I want to be that guy. It never occurs to me, but man, the high cannot be overstated. If you just get over the hump and force yourself to be of service directly to your community, I do think it's sort of a brain hack. It, uh, it makes I mean, it's a hack in the sense that I'm essentially nihilistic, and I'm like, I mean, this all this will do is prolong the lives of someone who's eventually going to die, and then infinite time will pass anyway. Um, but man, it works. Like, it makes you feel like you're somehow saving something or contributing to society, sustaining itself one second longer. Uh, it is a useful hack to be yeah, a service I'm, to others. I'm saying this not as a guy who goes to soup kitchens a ton. All, all I'm saying, I'm the same way. Oh, you I mean, should, like, dude. You get free soup. I go all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. As an attendee. Um, no, I, I feel like, you know, my, I'm not handy and, you know, I, I have always grown up with this thing. Like if I'm not immediately good at something, I just won't do it because I don't want to fail and I don't want to suck at something. Mm. Um, so I, I always gravitate to the things that I'm naturally good at because for the same reason, it's like, if I can't, I just want to show you all these things that I make, you know, like that's how I feel worth more often yeah. than not. But I do think, you know, not everything I make is good all the time and I can't make something every day necessarily. So <laughs> every once in a while it is nice. And obviously my wife and my kid appreciate it to just kind of like, all right, I'm going to stop thinking about how I can feel good and make something cool and just, yeah, get out of my head for a little bit. But that said, like I, I freaking suck at doing anything handy. Um, my wife is always dragging me to more, not soup kitchens, literally, but similar events, and they're always helpful. But yeah, it's not it's not a natural thing. It's not like in between yeah. every video I make, I'm at a soup kitchen. Dana okay. O'Brien yeah. used to always go to uh, play with kids uh, who, you know, like both parents are working, or it's a single parent mm-hmm. who has to work and they need supervision. And he dragged me along a couple times, and that meant a lot to me. It was really, really, 
it's a good thing to do. Uh, Jason, go ahead. Well, I'm afraid that we're going to turn off. If, if the audience thinks that the solution is go volunteer to Soup Kitchen, I know that's not. Okay, <laughs> right. here, I'm going to say this. Um, if you, Michael, if you had the ability, if someone could actually add up and measure the amount of happiness, forget about profit, forget about anything, forget about traffic, the amount of happiness your videos brought people over the years and could present it to you in like some tangible form, like here's all the jars of happiness. If, if you could recognize the unit of measure, the amount you saw there would floor you. I think you would collapse on the floor if you saw it. If you take the millions of people, and I got so much fan mail over the years, you had to have gotten a two from people saying, man, I was suicidal. And I just sat down, there was a day I couldn't, and I just watched a bunch of your videos, and I just laughed my ass off. And it just totally changed my mood that day, you saved my life. I think everyone on Cracked got at least one of that. The two, don't let anyone and don't let your own brain tell you that it's like this frivolous thing. Like it's, well, just YouTube videos. There's a million people. Like there's a YouTube video of a guy getting bit in the dick by a dog that has 40 million views. So who cares? <laughs> Man, it matters to people. It does. It's, it's especially, you know, you have a long day and you're getting yelled at by your boss and you can sit down in the video and it's free. Uh, I, it, it means it means the world to a lot of people. Jason, that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. Thank you so much. Uh, and I know you're just you're just making an observation, but man, you have a way with words. That is, ah, uh, I enjoyed that very much. Um, <laughs> but it does take me to a follow up question that I wanted to deploy at to, as a way of sort of unpacking. Um, because, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to call this episode, your mileage may vary because when I read that, when I, when I saw your video, I immediately had the selfish emotional reaction and felt very negatively about it. Uh, not about you putting the video out, but about myself and the choices I'd made in life. And I have you here and I want it to be like, so what do you say to that? Fix that smart guy. Uh, which is essentially, uh, I very consciously, uh, I, I seem to be addicted to making myself of value in that way. My personality can best be described as a bundle of hobbies and skills that I have learned. I basically treat, and I'm not going to lay this all at your feet, man. I just want your your take. Believe me, I, I have a team of therapists behind me. But um, but I basically treat every second I'm awake as a unit of work or time in which to be productive. And I know my close friends all, you know, like it's a running trope that uh, Swaim is a nice guy, but I wish he was around more. He's always head down working on something and usually more things than I can conceivably do. I bite off more than I can chew. Everyone who knows me well knows these things about me. Um, and it comes from a place of having such a specific goal in mind because you spoke in your video about try to imagine. So let's say I'm an incel and I'm trying to imagine what women want. And um, Mel Gibson's mellifluous voice fills my head and I do whatever it says. That's that how that movie works, right? Anyway, <laughs> What if instead <laughs> your goal is to write for television or film or it's something that specific? And uh, 
I spend all my time honing and keeping those skills honed, but I am reaching an age and a time in my life where I wonder what else I'm missing out on. And I know you meant you already basically broke this down for me. You're like, well, you're on the other end of the spectrum, so it didn't really apply to you, what I said, did it? Um, but I'm wondering if you have insights on, because you are a tremendous workhorse too, I know it from the amount of material you put out, unless... Um, Unless you tell me, no, it was easy, cracked was not taxing, but I don't buy that. Uh, what should I just keep going? Do I just keep uh, spending every waking second trying to prove to Hollywood that I'm valuable, or do I reorient my goal? What do I? What's your advice for people who feel like they are tremendously skilled, um, and but they're always adjacent to what they're? I'm getting tired, man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like, as you mentioned, my position with making the video and writing those articles is that the problem in America is not everyone is so dynamic and so bursting with side projects that they're getting overwhelmed. I'm talking specifically about this lost generation of, of guys who've kind of gotten planted on the Sophia, just scrolling through their phones because they don't know they like the, the way the economy works now. It's so easy to get locked into like a treadmill of, okay, well I'm delivering for, you know, whatever the Instacart or whatever during the day I'm driving for Uber at night. And those jobs don't, aren't teaching you skills that will let you get another job. So you wind up on this treadmill of just, I'm making enough money to pay the rent this month. And then you blink your eyes and you're 40 years old and you're still doing it, right? So I, I'm, I was addressing that audience. Yeah, you have the opposite problem and you have more my problem because work is the therapy for me. Uh, for Same. a lot of people, I, yeah. I think that Winston Churchill and, and the responses to this are going to be like, what, the all-time great racist? <laughs> here, here <laughs> I'm using Winston Churchill as the inspirational figure <laughs> that he was a few years ago, um, where I think he described as a black dog chasing him, the Depression. Like he, cause he was always, you know, he wrote books on the side and was a historian and, uh, you know, it, it's easier. And if you look at, so... I, for a long time, felt bad about this, that I am frantically building the tracks in front of the depression train, which is running full speed behind me. But the thing was, every biography of a successful person, every historical figure, the founding fathers were all the same. Thomas Jefferson had this, they all had this thing where because they, in addition to being the founding fathers, they also on the side were master craftsmen or musicians, or they spoke multiple languages, or they read four books a week. Like they were all people where it's like, I'm going to do stuff and, um, and that's going to be like, that's going to be my life is I'm going to accept that I'm the type of person that always needs to be doing things. Now, I can circle back and tell my life story in a moment if someone wants to hear it. It's again, I don't know how long you like these episodes to be or, or not be. These ones can go long, although I have another episode at three. So we have about an hour left if we if we want to go that long. I will keep this as brief as I, as I can because it will it will help put some things in perspective. A lot of the people at Cranked who lost their jobs in December of 2017, Cranked was the first big job they got out of college. Dan O'Brien was an intern. He started as an intern. He was still in school. 
Um, I don't, I don't think Cody had been out of school for very long at all when we brought him on board. I could be, you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, no, it's true. Pretty much across the board, all of us. Yeah. There were a lot of people yeah, who were 22, 23 years old and they came on board. That was not my situation. My situation was I went to college for journalism. Um, okay. Let me go back even further than that. This will help. Uh, I grew up in a small town. When I was in high school, the internet did not exist. The The thing that would eventually be define my life and my life's work, because my books were originally written on the internet, it was mm-hmm. not a thing. So one, anyone really young listening to this, the technology or the format of the medium that you master may not be a thing yet. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. when you're looking into the future and you don't see any hope, as I did back in 1992 or whatever, I just... So as I was in high school, I was an unremarkable high school student, uh, got a D in English class my senior year. Um, I went to a community college for two years purely to delay for two years having to think of something to do, and then finally went to a university for journalism just because I was kind of a news junkie and liked reading the news and all that. And in the two years there, I became convinced that I was going to be really famous because I, I felt I, I, they let me anchor their newscast after a semester. They, cause they had like a, 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 a university news show they did every night mm-hmm. and I excelled at it. And I seemed to be good at explaining things to people. And I seemed to, it's like, I have found my talent. I am going to be a famous news person. Got a job before graduation, even um, at a local with their ABC affiliate as their morning news producer at, at age, whatever, 22. That lasted two years. Uh, I hated it. I was not good at it. Uh, I There was at least one incident that almost got me fired. I had no aptitude for it. My coworkers, some of them were nice, but in general, the ones who were really successful were horrible people. Um, and just the, the way journalism worked, and especially local journalism, everything about it just killed me. So mm-hmm. after less than two years, this would have been 1999, uh, I left and was adrift. So I, during that time, I just spent most of the next decade working a series of office jobs. I worked in a law office doing their billing for a while. I did data entry at an insurance company. On the side, I started the website, pointlesswastedtime.com, but again, I never made money off of it. This was, uh, the dot-com bubble collapsed in 2000, so the ad rates fell through the floor. Um, I made a few hundred bucks a month off ad revenue. A lot of that went back into hosting fees, things like that. So I had a good audience. I had built up, you know, like fan base, but I wasn't making any money off it. I was, you know, driving a, a, a used a truck that sometimes would not go in reverse. And so you would just have to keep driving forward for a while, which is like, it was like a <laughs> metaphor, but, um, and I was writing. So I was working at one point, working a full-time job in an office, working a part-time job in a different office. I was updating pointlesswastedtime.com in the evenings. And then I was writing John dies at the end, the novel, uh, on weekends and whenever I could fit it in. So that would go on for eight years. I was 32 years old when I got my first job making money off writing. So I had the same crisis of, am I ever going to make it? Because I 
thought this was a young person's game. Like, and then in that time, in that decade, all of the the peers and friends I had who had started websites, they had eventually shut them down and went and just got jobs, just jobs, you know, working at a car dealership or, or whatever. I watched many of the outlets that I wrote for dissolve and, and go bankrupt. The ad networks that I was making money from, like 30% of the time, you would just never get your paycheck because you'd turn out that the network had gone broke in that meantime. And then finally got the job in 2007 um, that they were restarting Cracked. And then the guy who had the job before me, who was named Jay Pinkerton, he left to go work for Valve Software and wrote Portal 2. He also just wrote uh, Half-Life Alex. Half-Life Alex, yes. A comedy, a comedy genius, but I knew Jay. He had worked with me on Pointless Waste of Time for some things, so he recommended me to Jack. Um, and then Jack, you know, contacted me, and they interviewed. I was one of many people on the running um, but I think it was Jay's recommendation that put me over the line because he, he could verify, yes, the guy, he gets in on deadline, he's not crazy, and so on. So mm-hmm. I got that job offer, and keep in mind, at the time, Crank.com was, had just, was a broke magazine that had just been bought by a dot-com startup because demand media had only existed for a few months at that point. They, they were, they started in like late 2006, something like that. So I had literally told my wife, like, I'm going to take this, you know, it, it comes with health insurance. It pays like, I think it was $45,000 a year to be their one other editor. I was like, now this company is going to be broke within a year because it's a dot com. Like all these dot coms mm-hmm. are, they come and go, but it's fine because this will be good resume material. And it's better than what, you know, like working at the, I, at the time I was working at the insurance company. And again, not like writing copy and not writing ads, not doing anything creative. I never had a job like that. I was doing data entry on medical claims. And I was like, it'll be, and I said, I'll, I'll meet some people. Like I'll make friends. This Jack guy seems good. And so I think that will help me get a, a foot in the door of this industry. They never thought it would be that, like this big thing. But the point was by that point, all of my dreams of one day I'm going to be a superstar or that I'm this exceptional talent had been completely beaten out of me because I'm working office jobs and am almost getting fired. I'm getting taken aside saying you're not typing the claims fast enough. The last job I applied for before getting the the deal it cracked um, was at a UPS warehouse where they load the trucks and I didn't get mm-hmm. it. I, I wasn't good enough to get the UPS warehouse job. So all of my confidence, all of my thoughts of, oh, I'm a superstar, I'm destined for greatness were gone and stomped into the dirt over and over again. Like I had fans on for a pointless waste of time. But mm-hmm. if I went to Thanksgiving and told my family, oh, yeah, I wrote an article, it got read by 100,000 people. And they're like, oh, what, what's the name of the magazine? They're like, no, no, it was on the Internet. It's like, oh, yeah. You're one of, you're a, so it's like a porn site. Because, like, you know, <laughs> it, this is a time when it was just anything that was on the Internet there, you know, was, was just garbage because anybody can, oh, it's like, oh yeah, my, my nephew's got a MySpace. Yeah. You should go right. look at it. It plays music when you, when you get on it. <laughs> so, so you have to understand that for me, Cracked was the latest in a long line of attempts to reinvent myself and teach myself. I mean, during that, that lost decade, I paid like $9,000 for a course on like an IT training course to learn how to set up networks and do mm-hmm. databases and different things. I got certified in like computer repair. It turned out I had no aptitude or skill for any of that. 
I submitted stuff to magazines, never got anything published. I submitted short stories for publication, no deal. Like, like I just had doors. No one, no one at any of those jobs I was working was like, it was like in that, that Mm -hmm. Billy Joel song, like, man, what are you doing here? I never got that. It was, it was (laughs) like, man, you kind of suck at this. It's so any, like those people would be shocked. Like, like, I don't know if they've ever Googled my name and found out that I'm like the New York Times bestselling author. Yeah, they, they would probably be stunned. So all of those illusions about like someday I'm going to write for whatever, whatever show was on at the time, Scrubs, uh, it, it, any of that was, was mm-hmm. just long gone even before Crank started. At this point, I'd settled a guest on Comedy Bang Bang. But yeah, I do think um, that's a very good point. And it, it's, uh, it just also speaks to... So you say you had that stuff beaten out of you. Uh, I think it speaks to burnout. What is your experience with burnout? Do you get to a burnout point or cause with me, when I overstress or when I take on too many projects and then try to see them all through anyway, uh, that's actually when my depression gets really bad. So I've had, like, I just had a bad spell because I, uh, so here's, here's a pitfall. I sort of want to speak to is Um, I, at this point, I'm, I get, I feel like it's not bragging to say I'm good at my job of being a, a manager of video content for a website. I um, of all the people on the world, I've had the bizarre opportunity to have been doing that longer than most people. And I've done it at an alarming rate continuously. So uh, I'm very well suited for the job at IGN. And as the people around me get to know me and realize that I am of value in the skill sets that apply to our work, I have steadily gotten more and more responsibilities. And now I'm right back where I start. One of the reasons I took the IGN job was that uh, I was getting burned out uh, because running small beans had no, had no clock in, had no clock out. I would just infinitely uh, work. And so I took the IGN job to settle down and now it's slowly but surely becoming the same thing. And so I wonder, uh, how you've avoided burnout Jordan or Jason, cause it sounds Jordan, like you also are burning the candle at both ends, trying to develop skills in your downtime, et cetera, et cetera. Like how do you balance the kid and with all that? Uh, I, you know, honestly, I, Maybe this is a maybe this is a flaw. Maybe I haven't been doing this long enough, but I actually tend to get a lot. It, it's interesting. Like in college, um, one semester I ended up only taking twelve credits, and then the next sem- semester I ended up taking nineteen credits. And the semester where I only took twelve, I did significantly worse. Um, I think for me, I don't think I've actually gotten to a point where I. Well, I say that. I, I mean, I, I guess for me, it always feels like what what makes me feel like I'm burning out is a combination of both working hard but seeing no results. And I think, you know, the way that's played out for me has been so I was in a band for a long time, and we were always on trips, and we were always playing shows all over the place. And, you know, seven years in, you know, you're driving at three a.m. trying to go back home. Uh, after some show and you just realize that nobody else cared both in the band and you know you play a show for three people sure yeah right so like we uh we got a show we got to play one show at warp tour 
like one stop. Ooh. And I was like, this is it. Warp. We've done it. We've made it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, nobody, nobody cared, you know, and you just kind of get to this, like we spent so much time practicing and so much time working. So I think for me, I don't know, it's, it's less about how much I do and more about how many people interact with it. Like I would even say, you know, maybe there's something so is off. it are, are we dancing around that it's fair to say like let your dream die or uh, you know the buddhist way to say it would be don't have expectations but uh cuz i've found that the only the way that i've managed to combat this feeling is just by uh it's like it requires a paradigm shift or a shift in perspective hmm. like uh jason really kindly uh, pointed to that I do have these tremendous uh, things that have been generated by the work I put into being a value, which is, uh, you know, connections to the fans and and that my work has impacted people in X, Y, Z ways. And uh, there's something about my dream being set and so like specific and crystallized ever since I was a kid that I want to be in Hollywood um, that I think uh, can put a veil between me and the joy of what I have accomplished and Jason you talked about it almost like I'm sure that lost decade was a dark time in many ways but it almost sounds like a benefit that you had it beaten out of you or you said it as if it were a benefit like I had already gotten over that and I feel like I'm just slowly going over that cusp and I do think it's kind of a rite of passage is to get over the narrative that you had for yourself for how your life would play out is that fair to say I think that it's, I don't want to, like saying like, let your dream die. I don't want to put it in a way that if if I had had a dream that like, I'm going to play in the NBA, like I'm going to, I'm going to, you not know, at some, right. At some point saying, we well, got to let that dream die. It That's not like a cruel or nihilistic or edgy thing to say. It's like, you may find that your true joy or your bliss as, as some people phrase it is in something else. And that you latched onto the NBA thing for, uh, for some, you know, for some reason that maybe looking back, it's like, well, why did I decide that was my thing? Like, like, mm-hmm. like I just, I was just watching a game on TV and I decided I wanted to play for the NBA and I devoted my entire life to it. Like it's an extremely painful process. Cause like I bounced around from wanting to be, you know, like a screenwriter to a, a bunch of different things, but there's a value to, there's a value to failure. I'm trying to phrase this so it doesn't sound like a bumper sticker. <laughs> you have to learn how to want things. There's two different ways people phrase it. So like if you ask me, do you want to look like The Rock? And I would say, well, yeah, if you have like a bottle I can drink and it, I right. will just magically look like it. Sure. I would love to look like that for a while and go to the beach and just walk around nude, which I'm sure the rock <laughs> is, that's what he does. Um, like, yeah. Or, or even if not that, just, just to be a fit person. I don't know. Some mm-hmm. of you may not know this about me. I'm not like ripped, but if, but do I want it in the sense that I will get up at 5 a.m. every day and work out for three hours, eat a bowl full of steamed fish and then run for three miles 
and then go to work and then after work hit the gym again before bedtime and then you know where i'm where i'm eating like 13 meals a day and i've got my sleep schedule because Mm. that's what the rock does right so when i say i want to be fit do i mean it as in like it'd be nice or do i mean it as in I want to do the whole thing. Like, like I want, I, I enjoy that, that process. So I think that was what happened to me because I had went to school for one thing, thinking like imagining being the guy who like breaks the big story and, and all the movies you've seen about journalists or, or whatever. And it's, you're on TV and you've got the mic and you're there at the scene of like a breaking thing. But when I actually saw it and saw the way it matched up with my skills, and it's like, well, I'm not very, you know, like my, my issue is I'm not super personable or, or whatever. Um, I don't have the hair for television. You know, you've seen it. it it's <laughs> so the process of that dream dying, I would not be here if that dream hadn't died. And what I've got is so much better. And uh, this is where it's kind of, you know, if you hear somebody like, you know, you hear like some child actor and it's like, well, I wonder whatever happened to them. And then you look it up and it's like, oh yeah, at age 16, they retired from acting and now they, they own like a real estate agency in, in, uh, in Arizona. It's like, well, that's sad. It's like, well, no, they probably actually, love it. Yeah. <laughs> they probably realized that the acting thing is, can be like a living hell and that Hollywood can be like the most toxic place on earth. And that, oh no, I've got three kids and I'm going to their softball games and, like I was fooled by society into thinking that's what I, that's what I wanted. So letting the dream die, I guess what I learned during that time I was away and then, you know, cause it was during that period that like the World Wide web became a thing, you know, and became mm-hmm. a thing that anybody could do. And so I started to teach myself how to do it. And it's like the instant gratification of writing and then it's immediately up for feedback. Like that was great. And it just lit up parts of my the sheer speed with which my... these death threats come in is delightful. Yeah, yeah. But then <laughs> you know, and I look around at the stories that like Samuel L. Jackson got his first huge film role at age forty-seven, and that you know that That's Colonel nuts. Harlan Sanders, the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, started his, his first KFC at age sixty-nine. Nice, nice, because he. Because he had, yeah, and that, that's that's why he did it. He, he, waited, waited, yeah. he was that age. He, t- he waited was ready when he was Well, 20, I'm not but... going to live to 420, so this is the only yeah, option. So, <laughs> this is the, I'm going to do it at the sex number. He said that his whole life. No, he was a guy who had bounced around. He'd been a lawyer for a while. He'd owned a gas station for a while. And he had eventually found some success selling. He had found a way to like that if you used a pressure cooker to cook the chicken, it would like put more grease in the chicken. <laughs> and people loved it. And he, he sold it out of his gas station. And then they moved where the highway was. They built an interstate that just passed right by it. So none of his traffic is the exact thing that happened to Cracked. <laughs> like where Facebook <laughs> shut off our traffic. It's the analog version, yeah. This the state built a highway that carried all the tourists that were the, the basis of his customers based past his store so he closed it down and used his social security checks to, and, and took his pressure cookers and put them in the back seat of his car and just drove around to these restaurants saying look here's the deal i will show you how to make this extra greasy chicken with this this bag of spices that only i know how to make and then we'll split the money and he invented like the concept of the fast food franchise in his old age and, and 
if you know i'm age 45 and i feel it i'm sure when i'm 69 i will not feel like sleeping in my car and driving around the country <laughs> trying to start up but you know and so within a few years he's like in the ads and his face is on the logo and he's world famous it took him 69 years to find the thing he was born to do. And so I have just tried to keep that in mind that he wouldn't have gotten there if he hadn't just kept trying stuff. He's kind of, he's kind of my hero. And I think where I am now, and again, full context, I just quit my job. I, I, in March of this year, I had a job working from home with full benefits and, you know, and health benefits and, and everything else. I quit it. I left it because I couldn't, I couldn't do that and write the book at the same time. I, I had to learn to say no to right. people. And that's the other thing that I had to learn late in life was you have to say no to people. You have to say, no, I, this is my day off. And that was something I didn't do for a really long time because I was scared to death. I still don't do that. that. Well, if I say yeah. no, they may, they may stop asking and it's so competitive and you've got a job where you know that if if I left this job and they posted it publicly, they would get 200,000 applications. Mm -hmm. It's like people want what I have. Um, but, you know, so there's a lot of things like that in terms of being able to not overpromise yourself and that sort of thing. But Can I, I just Michael, tried. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, Michael, I was just curious, like, can you articulate, you know, like why – uh, script writing specifically, like, I, I'm just curious because, you know, obviously Jason has kind of hopped around a lot and, you know, uh, you know uh, the advice does seem to be kind of, if not kill your dream, at least, you know, feel free to broaden or look for other dreams or whatever. But I am just curious based on, you know, this is the thing that you've been pursuing for so long. Like, what would you say is the heart behind it? Or like, what do you hope to get from it? So like, say you get hired to write, a Scrubs reboot tomorrow, you know, like what ideally does that give you? So that's the <clears> trouble <throat> is my dream is even loftier than that, which is like, uh, like I currently don't, I don't know anyone in my close circle. Like people would think I'm jealous of Dan or whatever because he's writing for last week tonight and, uh, or envious, I guess rather. And I'm not, I'm super happy for him. I would, I would take that job if it were offered me. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but it's not my dream. My dream is to make things that I thought of from scratch, much like Jason does. I so like uh, I wouldn't want to do a Scrubs reboot. I want to do my own show. I want to have made up the things. Uh, sure, and yeah. to me, where it comes from and why, uh, I have very nerdy romantic notions about the nature of storytelling, you know, dating all the way back to cavemen telling stories around the campfire. And I just believe that it's what I was put on earth to do in terms of every affinity that's been afforded me seems to be in terms of storytelling. And uh, of all the media that exists at the time I'm alive, film is one that makes the most sense to me, that's impacted my life the most. Um, video games are a close second, but there's an interactive nature that makes the story have to be broad and nonspecific for the most part. And, uh, I just think film is the ultimate, uh, ultimate marriage of visual storytelling, which you completely miss out on in 
solely book form, not to throw shade, Jason, but I just love visual storytelling. And uh, of course, you can describe visuals in books, but it's not quite the same as panning from one symbol to another and getting the interpolation. Um, There's just something special about film and then above and beyond that, every aspect of the process just delights me, uh, especially editing. Uh, And in fact, all the behind the scenes stuff is what really, I don't know, they're just places where I feel safe and like I'm doing what I was meant to do. Um, The part I like least is acting. And that's another pitfall of making yourself valuable is I am okay at acting when I try to act. And just that has meant that people constantly push me to the foreground or the places I've worked so far are like, well, Swain will do it. He's hosted things in the past, and I don't know if everyone knows this, but I have terrible stage fright, and I find acting very harrowing. And like before, every time I do a live interview with some celebrity, I like throw up before. And uh, I would ideally, ideally, you'd never see my face again. I would just talk to you on podcasts and write things and tell you stories. But for decades now, for, for 14, 15 years now, I've been like continuously acting and stuff just because it's the path that seems to open itself before me time and again. So I guess that's the, that's the weird loss of control aspect. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I used to always say, um, you know, cause my dream since I was a little kid was to be a guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's funny, just one weird Sounds like you are a guitarist, by the way. I am, yes, um, technically. Uh, but I've actually gotten more jobs singing, <clears throat> and similarly, uh, similar to you, like, I hate it. I am so nervous. I feel terrible. Um, but I can, I show up, you know? So sometimes there's just been more money in that. But mm-hmm. anyway, I, I always used to say as a kid, like, Man, I I don't care if I have to be Miley Cyrus's touring guitarist, you know, playing just uh, Party in the USA, like whatever that little lick is for the rest of my life. If I could use that to leverage, you know, my own band, even if nobody listened to it, like I would be okay with that. I'm just curious, like, is part of the appeal for you, like, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you back it all the way up, you could make a movie right now, right? You could grab your iPhone dis- and you could shoot it in the woods. I disagree. <laughs> or I've, I, uh, it is a very... I'm overly simplifying it. it but. I think you are, because, I mean... You know what he's saying, though, right? Like, like the ability to do that now as compared to 40 years ago is like when you would have to have bought reels of film. Like, it, it is more doable now for a group of people. Like, even if you had to Kickstarter it, well, like is part of it. Spoiler alert: prestige We are or the we are. No, I man, no, not at all. I don't care. Or like, I mean, I could. And I don't say I that could negatively. be in delusion in some way, but I, as far as I can tell, I am in it for the art, and I don't even mean that as like that's good, that's important. It just happens to be true. I just love stories, and I love being creative, and yeah. I love building the thing, and I love the process. I don't. I care about it being successful only because films require so much money and collaboration from so many people. You, uh, okay. So I hear you and we are strongly considering kickstarting our next movie because we're so frustrated by, I mean, in the interim, since we made our first movie, kill me now, we've written eight spec screenplays and they've all had long interested 
interesting journeys that ended in them not being made, you know? So, uh, we are at the point where we're like, we just want to make a movie. And when I say we, I mean, Abe and myself, uh, cause we're kind of hetero life mates on this quest together. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, that advice is well taken. And I think we're at that point, but you try everything you can to forestall that. I think only because, uh, you want to make a good movie and it can be done yeah. like cube is a good movie that's fairly cheap because it's just one you know anything said in one location whatever you can do tricks um but ideally i'd like five million dollars to make a movie that takes place in many locations with the actors i actually want in it and uh you know but that's a balance i i thought i could get that i think is the long and short of it um but right. now that it's been another eight years without getting a second movie, uh, I think we probably will go that way. Oh, I only I just thought uh, there's um, I can't remember the name of the movie. It's the it's the movie where like the monster can't go into the light or something. It's like or maybe it's Spider-Man it can turn only... off the dark. No lights <laughs> yeah. out. Uh, yes, I think it's either that director or maybe the director of the, the one where like you can't breathe or something. Don't breathe. Um, probably don't <laughs> breathe. Um, one, he may have done both, but basically that guy shot movies in his apartment in Iceland or something and somehow found a way to get some, and this is well, not shorts, right? Like they weren't featuring, like they were YouTube correct. shorts that got the drew buzz and then and he it, got. Well, that's another into... thing, man. If sketches that were highly polished were considered festival shorts, at this point, I have made 50 festival quality shorts. That's so true. they don't get I, called I, that. I, They're just sketches. Yeah, I, I'm only I'm literally I'm primarily asking because I am I am curious as somebody who also has like written a spec script before and it's garbage. So I would never show anyone really. But just that idea of like. You know, when you're trying to think of paths to success, like, you know, one of the things that I'm experiencing right now is that, man, this was not what I was hoping uh, four years ago when I would work, when I would make cracked Mm, content, mm -hmm. you know, I, that summer, 2017, I flew out to LA and I lied and said that I was just in LA to celebrate our anniversary, but it was literally just to try and go to cracked. Um. Uh, just to visit the headquarters and um yeah right so you know i went and i met dan and i met everybody and i was like and not everybody obviously i didn't meet you but uh i was just like you know this is where i want to work i want to work with these guys you know whether it's videos or writing or whatever and then everybody gets fired yeah (laughs) and i was like it's the end of all things (laughs) and so i've limped my way back by sheer i don't know tenacity or it something but just the and i'm still not like oh yeah this is it like i've made it like i've this is the dream i had four years ago i'm making crack videos but i'm making crack videos in my freaking basement like a dickhead instead of you know like you guys had this office and all these cool things and all these cool writers and stuff it's just you know hearing you talk about uh you know, wanting to write for movies and stuff. It's just interesting to me to think through like, yeah, am I doing the same stupid thing where it's like you're wasting your time making videos for the internet when you should be like what, hold up somewhere writing spec scripts forever? Or should you be, you know, honing your acting so that you'll get into a best picture 
nominee or whatever, and then you can say, actually, I also write. You know, like I'm just but, curious how you think through that process. Or I often wonder, right? did I fuck up by not mm. doing the other? Because the other route that a lot of people take to Hollywood is start as a PA on a production company. I'm like, maybe right, I should have exactly. done that because every job I've been at, people slowly find out that I'm pleasant to work with and I have valuable assets and I, I sort of work my way up. But I kept working my way up in web video because it immediately allows you to make cool shit. And I was just excited. I'd rather make cool shit than be a PA. And now I look right. back and wonder, but if I had just put in the time as a lowly PA fetching coffee, I wonder if network wise, I'd be making movies now. Cause I know that's worked for a lot of other people, but, uh, yeah, this is now just second guessing my career choices. The podcast, Jason, what were you saying? <laughs> Jordan, what's your your most popular video you've uploaded to Crack so far? The the biggest hit. How many views does it have? Um, hundred eighty ish, which is still below basically everything. Crack just hundred eighty hundred eighty thousand hundred eighty thousand. Yeah, hundred eighty thousand. Okay. So I want you to imagine yourself uh, standing at a microphone in a stadium with 180,000 people watching. Oh, man, 100%. Uh, that, I love this so much more than playing music. Is that music. a lot of people or not very many? It's so many freaking people. Okay. So if you say, man, I'm just I'm making these videos for some trivial amount of money in my basement like an idiot, that is a borderline psychotic delusion <laughs> to not realize you made something that made 180,000 people happy for a few minutes. And the whole of the species of the entire time humans have existed, the number of humans who have been able to reach out and speak to 180,000 people at one time uh, is microscopic. It's the upper 1% of the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. It is a tremendous privilege that the great minds in history came and went and never experienced. Shakespeare never performed in front of 180,000 people. It would not have been practical. Jesus Christ never had 180,000 followers, not while he was alive. Well, so he is, let us keep so things in alive. Yes, <sighs> in our hearts. Hey, let us let us keep things in perspective. And in fact, Jordan, I feel like when you were playing for the church band, you should have said that to someone. Like, hey, I've literally got more fans. I'm than more, Jesus yeah, had. more famous than Jesus or whatever. So yeah. please, if if you if you're gonna act like he's such a big deal, you should be acting like I'm five times as much <laughs> of a big deal. So I guess this is where it was. It was hard for me when I was at Cracked because, again, when I started at Cracked, we had no video, obviously. We had, like, uh, like every once in a while, we would have to make poor, like, Lux Friedman do a video. Like, do a song about phone. EBITDA. It, 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 like, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, or, or something. It, like, we just had nothing. But we were told even back then, look, the future is going to be video. The technology is coming where people are going to have phones they can watch video on. Everyone knew this was where the world was going. You know, as soon as the technology lets people do TV on their phone, that's what they'll prefer. Because in real life, more people prefer to watch TV than read books, right? Because passive is easier than than like active mm. entertainment. And so once you've got a phone where someone can do a video about this uh, this subject matter or a, a radio show about it or what would be called a podcast, they're going to prefer that over reading it. Like in the future, instead of, because Cracked was built on people reading these 2,000 word articles on their commute on the way to work, 
but once the technology with you know with unlimited data plans and and phones that are able to handle video so that now they can watch a 10 minute long video on the subway of that same get that same information that way or listen to a podcast get on the treadmill and listen to a podcast about the exact same subject that's what they're going to prefer so when we were like trying to get this started and started to accumulate video talent and it turned out that Dan could do video because again he started as just editing mm -hmm. articles as an intern Michael you started writing articles turned out you know you were very good on camera um you know Cody this guy was making videos in his bedroom had this great presence and and as we started you know grabbing these people and bringing them in it was so exciting because it's like we're making we're making like TV shows. Like I got to write like a science fiction series that other people worked long hours to build a space. Which is now set. called Star and, Trek and Lower was... Decks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, yeah, it was literally about, because we didn't have the Star Trek license. So in retrospect, maybe we should have sprung <laughs> for that. Uh, I'm sure it can't be it cost that much, but anyways, um, it was so exciting. So occasionally every once in a while, like once a year, they would drag me out to LA and when I talk to guys, when I talk to Dan or whatever, or Michael, or it, it, you know, it was all about, well, my, my spec script didn't go anywhere or, well, it's, it's looking like this project, mm -hmm. like everyone was disappointed that they weren't working on TV where from my point of view, it, it was, it was disheartening that everybody saw that as like a mm -hmm. stepping stone. Cause it's like, man, we've got something better because here you have total control. Here you can do whatever you want. Here you can get it up within a week of shooting it. Here you don't have to deal with the politics and the BS and the agents and the layer after layer of people lying to you. That thing where in the first meeting they're like, oh, this sounds great. Everyone here loves it. Everyone here loves it. And then you just, it's like, I know the past. It's, it's like, it's like all of that BS, like you don't have any of that. It's directly you to the audience. Because remember where I came from. I had no English degree. I had no background in publishing. I didn't have friends. I did not have an agent. I did not have anything. I started writing John Dies at the End as a story that I published on that website for free in 2001. It would exist as just this free thing for mm -hmm. seven years. You know, I started selling paper versions of it just because people were printing it out and reading it in like a three ring binder. <laughs> So I found like a print on demand company who would, I basically made like almost no profit off of it. Like it was like 20 cents yeah, but per you're installing like a user just, base. You're hooking them. But I never for one second thought of it that way. I did not aspire to do that. I did not aspire to be a best-selling author. I just wanted to tell this story because people really seemed to like it. I enjoyed telling it and it had all these ideas bound up in it and all this stuff. And so I just, I gave it away for free. It was spent tons of time just putting it up there. And the, what had eventually happened, I never submitted it to a publisher. In my life, I have never filled out a cover letter. I have never written a query letter. I don't even know what that <laughs> is. I have never submitted a manuscript to a publisher. I have never submitted a manuscript to an agent. I wrote this thing on the internet and this horror movie producer, director producer, Don Coscarelli contacted me and said, I wanted... I want to buy this. I want to make it a movie. I don't I, like, I don't want this to be a pile. Uh, one of a pile of projects I've got going, I want to make it like, I, like I, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and so he, from that, 
once word got out he was making it to a movie, then a publisher came, a real mm -hmm. publisher, St. Martin's Press, a division Macmillan came and said, we better publish this. Well, we then. want to publish this. <laughs> yeah. Who's your, who's your, yeah, who's your agent? It's like, I don't, I don't have an agent. It's like, okay, you've got to find an agent because we want to, we want to get this out there. So the, the point is for the people out there listening, like I was just creating because at some point during this crisis, this dark period of my life, I realized that you have to take pleasure in just the creation of the thing. You have to take pleasure in just, and I know that it's not the same as making a movie because I did not have to kickstart $250,000 to make the write this novel. I wrote it on a budget of $0. I, I pulled up my keyboard and started tapping. It's like, boom, project started. There's my... You know, the budget was whatever it it cost in caffeine to keep me awake while I while I wrote it. But eventually, at some point, after having all of those dreams dashed, I settled into this idea that just creating something that makes somebody else happy, whether or not you make money off of it, whether or not it's always just a hobby on the side, like it's easy to say now. It's like, well, now books have literally made you like a rich person. No. I believe this exact same thing when I was 23, 24 years old, because I went through this period where it looked like I would never succeed at anything creative, that I would forever be a guy working in a UPS warehouse. I, 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 I applied for that job because I thought, well, that's like repetitive mm. motion tasks. That's actually a good time to like yeah. think of stuff, especially if there's like machinery running in the background, like a lot of ideas occur to you while you're doing mm -hmm. some repetitive mindless task. Um, and everybody who works in a UPS warehouse, like it's not mindless. I know. That's why I didn't get the job. I'm just saying I have settled in this idea that I will have some manual and labor we'll job yeah. and I will write my stuff in the spare time, not making money from it necessarily, maybe like making some you know money that I could you know, occasionally buy a new TV or whatever, but people will read it. It will make them happy. They will tell me it made them happy and that that's enough. Like maybe that's enough because the creation of this thing like and so if you put yourself in a position where i will never get to create unless these total strangers in hollywood say i can i think that may be a death sentence because you can't control what they do or don't do it's not possible you you can't make them come around if they've decided the market doesn't want the thing you want i think at some point you may have to settle into a thing and say, well, look, we're going to find a way to get this done. If we can't do the $5 million version of it, maybe we can do the $100,000 version of it and we can raise the money or find an investor or, or befriend. If you can marry like a rich, a rich widow <laughs> is one way some people do uh, it, but not, but not have your happiness in the hands of a bunch of strangers who don't know you and who are always just going to like, they don't know what they want. I've been with a social worker for the last eight years, but I am taking her for all she's worth, which is not very much. <laughs> I think, yeah, I guess, you know, it's interesting you're saying this, Jason, just because um, because everything I do, I try and monetize or make the, the biggest it can be. When I wrote this terrible spec script, I uh, realized that my dad was friends with a former uh, script writer um, who used to work for the Discovery Channel. He wrote a little bit. For the, I, don't, I don't think he actually got any episodes on the X-Files, but he was asked to write some specs for them. And so I met with him, and the first thing he said was, don't do this. Um, <laughs> you're never going to be... He's like creatively fulfilled, basically, was his point, was that you know once you get to the... you know, And obviously, it's going to depend on how you get there, but a lot of the the... Hundred million dollar projects aren't necessarily what the guy who wrote the thing 
wanted, which is, I guess, just coming all the way full circle when I was asking you kind of what you want. I'm just curious because of like, I I do wonder what is the best uh, medium to get like the storytelling aspect that you want, like, you know, probably novels have the most control. Uh, it's funny. It's funny. I, I, I also, I mean, I would equally love to be a novelist and it's funny having Jason here that I say this, but the main reason I spend my writing time writing spec scripts instead of novels is in my mind, making a living as a novelist is even more of a long shot than yes. breaking into Hollywood. If, I actually think I'm taking the safer route trying to break into Hollywood. If, if you're talking about trying to get to a place where you can afford, you know, health insurance, diapers for and your a baby and, from and, doing and that. a home and a yeah. mortgage, just writing books. Yes. It is the tiniest. I am extremely lucky. I, I am a, a lottery winner because again, a, a, a Hollywood again it's not just that someone in Hollywood bought the rights because he didn't pay that much for the rights it's that he mm. immediately made the movie and it has run continuously mm. on Netflix and then Hulu and then Showtime and then HBO it's over and over and over again John Dysdian never was played wide in theaters but it doesn't matter it, it went directly to streaming and then was on my recommended thing on Netflix for like two straight years it has been seen by millions of people and every time it airs somebody buys a copy of the well, book well and you're lucky that Don Coscarelli is actually a fairly accomplished director because the movie came out and this is not negligible the movie came out as a good enough movie that they then of course re-inspired I think a whole brand new swath of people to check out your books, right? It objectively did. Yeah. yeah. And I, and the next, the sequel became a New York times bestseller. That's why I call myself a bestselling author. Cause the, that, <laughs> that book came out right around the time the movie was coming out on DVD and all that. So all of the press for the movie was also press for the book. So it basically, you know, he spent millions of dollars to shoot a 90 minute commercial for my books is the way I sometimes look at it. Speaking um, of which I got to say, I just saw, this is apropos of nothing, but I just saw the ad they showed for the new Zoe Ash book where it's like point of view in a limo and she's petting the cat and all that. That was fantastic. That was a uh, cool little video. I hired a guy. That was my video. I, I, did, I didn't shoot it. Nice. I, I paid a guy here in the city where I live to shoot that for me. The publisher did not make that. I, That's I, cool. I decided, yeah, it really came out. I decided two years ago that I, I wanted like a cool commercial like for- Like a trailer. Yeah, yeah, a trailer for the book that, um, so anyway, yeah, please, everyone listening to this, go go watch that. That's, I'm, <laughs> I'm a professional podcast guest now because I'm doing publicity for the new book coming called Zoe Punches the Future and the Dick. Uh, titles we'll are very that. important. Uh, so I try to come up with titles that you <laughs> cannot forget or that if you saw it on a shelf, you would have to like stop and, and pick it up or whatever. But yes, no, I, but I, again, I like to think if I had never gotten the size of the book deals I had where I could do this full time, I would simply, I would either have found another internet job during the day, or I would be working somewhere, but I would still be writing. Because I want to write books, I want to right. tell these stories. I would still do it, and if, if you know, because most books, like the advance they'll get is you know like fifteen hundred dollars, something like that, and and it takes a year to write it. Like it's literally just like beer money for a lot of people, but they do it because they love it, and it's cool. And you can go to conventions, and you'll find a dozen fans who have read your your work, and it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful and the creative thing. fulfillment is off the charts. It's, you told you have your full story. Control. 
and yeah. you'll get that one letter from somebody who's like, I read this and I And I cried. got it. I, I yeah. cried. And no <laughs> yeah. one says it about my books, but <laughs> it's... <laughs> these no, but my- when you get a feedback where you can tell, oh, they really, I, they got everything I was trying to transmit and they it resonated in the way I wanted, they got the work. The work, the story transmitted from me to another human, I guess that's possible. We aren't all alone in this universe. It's a profound feeling. I, I love it. It's profound, it. and it's also I feel like it is just biology. Uh, humans yeah. are we 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 dominate the globe because the globe because we're good at two things. We're good at making tools, and we're good at organizing. You know, we, working we can, together. Yeah, we can have a million people all all functioning in a city to make that city thrive, and it for the most part it works. And you will not see like, yeah, ants can do it, but can the ants go to the moon? No, they can't because they're stupid. Uh, so yeah. our to cooperate and do I say I mentioned the word tool users. That's where we enjoy building things, shaping things, working, manipulating the environment, making things that are tangible, making a big bowl of chili. Where you know a bear, a bear is just going to eat the crap it finds on the ground. A human can take that crap and make it into a bowl of chili, and and that's there's a satisfaction that comes with that because that's how our species got to where we are. And so just by natural selection, it kind of makes sense that if you were the type of person who was good at making chili, then you you are a, an example of what's good about the species, and then you passed on your genes. Where if you could not make chili, no one would have of sex course, with you. Of course, why would and they? Yeah, and your genetic line <laughs> died out as it should have. Yeah. Did so Jason? You, are you a good cook? Because I notice you go to the cook example a lot in the video too. You went to cooking. Are you a good cook? No, no. I you sh- it sounds like examples. you want to learn to cook. You should go for it, man. It's fun. I always use examples of things I'm not good at because I don't want to make it sound like I'm telling other people, well, you know what you need to do? You need to write books and you need to like play Borderlands a bunch um, and Animal Crossing. And then you also don't worry about working out because that's that's nothing. Like, I get it. Like, why see other other people who will help? Like, you, you can make, both of you guys can make music like Michael can Michael is is a, a rapper. I cannot play guitar. I cannot sing. Like Jack O'Brien can run marathons. Mm-hmm. Like Jack can do all the stuff I can do and also he's an athlete. You know, and Dan O'Brien can do all the stuff I can do and also he's good on camera. You've seen the videos I make. I'm not like Dan. It, it, it's it, it's <laughs> like, you know, and like Jordan being able to make a video in your home. I can't do that. You've seen my videos. I can't do what you do. I can't do like, like all the production stuff and all the editing. I, I don't even know how to do that kind of editing. I'm editing in like the software that came with my computer, like Movie Maker or whatever. Like when I see these Gotta other say, people who. say, that's a fun hobby too. Editing is, is a delightful. Jordan, do you like editing? I love it. I do. I really fell in love with it. So my dad's a graphic designer um, and has been my whole life. He started his own company when I was one. So we've always had Macs, uh, which means that, you know, compared to most of the kids that I knew, we had iMovie really early. Um, So I would, I was so into it. Uh, My dad and I, I remember in fifth grade, I was like, all of my book reports are going to be like movies. Um, and so we would, yeah, we would like go to his office where he had the the coolest Mac and, um, we would like, he would like, yeah, we would just edit it together and then we would, uh, print it on a VHS and bring it in. And the teacher's like, what do you want me to do with yeah. this? Like, I don't, <laughs> we can't show this. So they would have to take it home and watch it on their own. 
Um, but yeah, editing, editing is, is, like, is a lot like cooking. Blast. It's I where the shit all finally comes together and coheses into a bowl of chili. I chili. My favorite thing is, yeah, a terrible project where I'm like, oh, like just a bunch of footage. And yep. you're like, oh, this is garbage. Like nobody will ever love this. And then you you splice it all together. And you're, and you're like, like oh, oh, it is just as good as the there. script was. My <laughs> judgment of whether this was good was correct. It just seemed like garbage in the middle. Yeah. And then you exactly. edit it back up and exactly. you remember it is good. Or, or, you know, one out of every 10 times, you're like, nope, it's garbage. It was a bad idea. But uh, <laughs> uh, we're about out of time. But I wanted to ask one more question because, uh, Jason, you mentioned Alex's show, which I was lucky enough to be on with him. And we, or you probably meant uh, the Cracked Podcast. By the way, his new podcast, Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. We haven't given them an explicit shout out yet, but Alex uh, Schmidt has a new podcast. Check that out. Um, but we did one called Vonnegut's Together about Kurt Vonnegut, and there is a resonant passage, I forget which novel it's from, but that I wanted to ask about because he basically, not in so many words, talks about how there's a tendency by humans to... Uh, self, not only self-destruct, but become motionless, uh, become worthless, not pursue being of value to others. And it's because on some level we require, we're trying to prove that someone will still love us because ultimately all humans do want to be accepted and loved merely for existing. I don't want to, I don't want people around me to feel connected to me only through transaction. I want them to feel connected to me because of, I don't know, insert the blank, some indefatigable elusive quality that just gives my life value and meaning. Uh, and my question is, uh, do you guys share that observation? I think that is true. And is it bullshit or like, uh, I'll go to Jason first. Do you think, do you think human life has inherent value, uh, meaning or value if it's not providing a service? Um, what a weird question to ask, but please do your best. Well, no, it, it's, I, I don't want this to come off as like a cynical worldview because I don't think it is. It's just that everything is part of the the transaction and that's okay. You are surrounded by people who are imperfect and they have wants and they have needs. They have needs of, you know, they need to eat. They need to be entertained. They need to be loved. They need. So when I talk about getting good at the skill, it's not just the stuff. It, it's like, well, I've learned fencing, being a good listener, knowing how to like read people's moods. That's a skill. It's a learned skill. Mm. You know, knowing how to, to like care about someone and their state of mind and to be there for them, to, to anticipate things that they need before they know they need it. Like that's all a learned skill. That can be part of it too. But when you say, well, I just want to have people to love me for me and you're just kind of existing, I don't think you take that attitude with other people. I think you tend to gravitate toward people that give you something back. But like I own a dog, the dog doesn't perform any service. The dog, that dog can't do anything, but she exists because I can, she's so happy. Like I feed her and it's like the best day of her life when I give her this bowl of stinky dog food and just knowing that I've made this animal happy is also like just receiving. It's like a symbiosis yeah, just Receiving almost, yeah. my help and receiving my love and returning it. Like all she does is she's just happy to see me every day. And if you 
if you try to hurt that dog, I will kill you and everyone you know without hesitation, and I will feel nothing. And all this dog does is receive my love and my care and is just happy to see me when I walk in the door. And that's it. That's all it takes. I think what I appreciate about your video and some of your points, Jason, was like, yeah, a lot of it is interpersonal, but there is an element of what you're saying that is solely for our own kind of mental state and benefit. This idea that like, you know, regardless of, of wanting other people to love you, there's a degree to which you gain some confidence and some perspective by learning how to make chili, not to woo people to you per se, but even just there's a sort of self-confidence that you gain from having learned a new skill or doing something. And I think those things, I guess to your point, can become attractive on their own. And kind of your point too of like, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be around people that, that only want from you and don't mm. offer anything. And I know that sounds like really negative and really transactional, but... But obviously, there have been scenarios um, where there are people that are very, uh, very closely adhered to the like, um, you know, you need to just love me for me and like who I am. It doesn't matter what I do. Like, you know, I, I could burn down a building and you should still think that I'm the I'm the best. And you're right. I just you just naturally it's difficult in some ways. And it's hard to get past that because it kind of feels like they don't care about you a little bit. Like they don't care enough to try. It is transactional, it's, it's but if what you're it, transacting is, uh, you know, <clears throat> mutually beneficial, then there's nothing really cheap or cynical about the fact that it is transactional. Transactional can just mean, well, everything exists within a system. So for any information or good to transmit from any one node to another, that's a transaction. Even if the thing you're transmitting is altruistic, like love and respect that it transacted, you know, it moved from one place, it shifted around in the microcosm. Yeah. And, uh, to your quote specifically, Michael, I, um, have you guys ever heard of the Enneagram? Hmm. It's a, uh, it's another personality thing. It's big oh, no. in churches. Um, but it's, it's based on the seven deadly sins. Um, and then they split pride into three of them, but basically, as opposed to a lot of other personality tests that are more like, you know, I'm really social or like I make snap judgments. This is a lot more about um, sort of where your weaknesses are and what your central fears are. Um, and my, I think, central uh, motivation is is kind of this like performative, uh, I want to make things and I want you to look at the things I make. But the underlying fear behind that tends to be um, a fear of worthlessness, which kind of to your point of like, Sometimes you make things because you think that's how people will love you, but then you fear that that's the only thing that they love. And you want there to be you. something intrinsic um, about you that is just valuable in and of itself. But I don't know that there is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's the problem is it's it's this compulsive, like, I'm going to make this song so that you think I'm cool or worthy of hanging out with or love. Um, but I also don't want you to love it more I than want you to remember it originated like, from me. It, I'm the subject. It's the object. And, <laughs> my only thing right. is that and, sometimes yeah. the best way to get out of your head is get into a case where if they enjoyed the song and you brought that happiness into the world, then that's all that matters. 
even if they hate you, if they, if you hear them right. curse your name, but you saw them enjoy the bowl of chili you made and they don't know you made it, but you see how they're like, this is the best chili I've ever had. Or they don't even say it. You can just tell they really enjoy it because they're eating it really fast. That if you can be happy with that, then you're ahead of the game because the world uh, is yeah, yours. It, in terms yeah. of this thing where you get the, the modern world kind of robs you of that in many cases. It can keep you locked into you staring at your phone or whatever. Uh, and you can get this phony feedback that I think you just, if you can make something tangible, whatever, uh, and makes people happy, that can be tremendous therapy. That's really all, that's really all I have to offer. Yeah. Although not to decry the simulated experience, uh, a hundred percent of the time, cause video games, when used a responsible amount, I think there, there is something nice about it. You're right that it's intangible, but I'm still good with it. I'm still going to play. Cyberpunk. I have played more video games than probably anybody in your listenership. <laughs> I've been playing games since 1978. So don't, they don't even have to step to me with that. Wow. You know, it's another cranky old man. <laughs> I own every console. <laughs> It's, it, please don't, it's just, there's, you know, there's a moderation. If you feel like you, you've gamed all week and then you feel this depression, like I didn't accomplish anything. That's why, cause you, you need that's, other things right. in your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tend your gardens. Uh, but we are out of time. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me in the pit. We spend an extra long time in the pit, which I'm sure is going to delight everyone. Uh, and I'd love to have you guys both back on some of our other shows to talk games and movies. Jordan, are you much of a gamer? All right. I am. Yeah. I've, uh, same thing with the Mac. I've been playing. Uh, I started on really, Maelstrom, But I couldn't. Maelstrom, I couldn't, that takes me back. Do you I know Escape drive. Velocity? Oh, my gosh. Right? Dude, I've been it's looking for that gem. recently. Good Mac game. I... Uh, I had the Star Wars uh, plug-in right. or whatever that changed all the planets and the ships. And I yeah, right. freaking love that game. Well, uh, till <laughs> next time. Thank you guys so much. It, let's get, let's do plugs because I do, I want, uh, I want to send some traffic where we can. Jordan, where can people find the cracked YouTube channel? And what have you got coming up on it? What, can you <laughs> give us any sneak peeks? Um, yeah, so we did the, we did the season one finale today, which was weird and kind of fun. Um, we're going to take a little bit of break from that specific format, but we'll be back with the season two really soon. And now we're trying some Really? Oh, I'm so excited stuff. for you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of me throwing ideas out there and a lot of them being like, how much money does it cost? And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, why does it matter? Uh, so We'll see. Um, but I think there's some fun nice. stuff coming. Jason, one more time with the, yeah. I know you, I know, you know, yeah, it. the book uh, comes out next month, but pre-orders are everything. If you think you are even vaguely interested in a book called Zoe punches the future in the dick or the previous book in the series called futuristic violence and fancy suits, they are available anywhere. Books are sold Amazon, any of those places. Any, any, if you somehow have a bookstore still open in your city, uh, my social media, if you Google David Wong or Jason Pargin, you'll find it. It's I'm on all the platforms, all, all of them, Instagram, all of them. And pre-orders are especially useful for metrics, right? Like if people are huge uh, Jason Pargin fans and want you to be well and thrive, like a pre-order really It's all that matters, that yeah, accurate? because if you're not uh, J.K. Rowling, the pre-orders are how bookstores decide what books are going to stock. 
yeah. like put on and the then shelf. Yeah. The, what books sell is dependent entirely on what bookstores choose to stock. So it's a chicken <laughs> or the egg thing. The only way to win is by drumming up a bunch of pre-orders. So I have to, I, I do, my life is a string of podcasts and guest articles pushing the book. Uh, but yeah, it'll be out in October. <laughs> All right. So if y'all promise to pre-order, Zoe punches the future in the dick. I promise to exploit this window and have Jason on as frequently as possible until he finally gets sick of it. Uh, but that is all for this Tales from the Pit. We'll see you next time. This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!